morning. I look to my left, and it looks like uh, some of our uh, regulars are still uh, enjoying their Thanksgiving festivities, maybe still out of town. But I also see some visitors here today, and whether you're a member or a visitor, we're glad that you're here. I hope and I pray that our, our time here together will be beneficial for all of us as we strengthen and encourage each other and as we worship God together. I want to begin by reading again from our text that was read a, a few moments ago by Joseph from Luke chapter 14. And just to set the setting here, we didn't read the first verse, but the context of this is one Sabbath when he, that is Jesus, went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And if you read through the rest of the opening of that incident, there's a, a fellow there who has dropsy, and Jesus heals him there on the Sabbath. And, of course, that causes some controversy. And then in verse 7, he told a parable of those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you'll begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He also said to the man who'd invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. It was customary to invite the visiting preacher, if we can call him that, and other distinguished guests to your home after the synagogue service. But the details here indicate that this occasion was staged. This was a setup. Back in verse number one, it says that they were watching him carefully. The lawyers, the scholars who were assembled there, they were more interested in what Jesus would do than they were in actually visiting with him, let alone eating. And the fact that a, a man with dropsy just happened to be there that day for Jesus to heal, that seems to be more than coincidental. So this scene is a typical setup by the Pharisees. But Jesus went anyway, despite their intentions. And he used this occasion as an opportunity to teach, particularly with the, the social etiquette of the day involving formal dinners in mind as an example of how not to behave. At this particular feast, as we noted in verse number seven, they're, they're jockeying for the places of honor. There's a, a scramble for them. And these places depended upon the rank, upon the distinction of those guests who were there. And it was commonplace in the first century, if you were someone who was very distinguished and you were going to get one of those best seats, you would arrive fashionably late. So, of course, everyone could see you enter. And then maybe, maybe you even took some sort of perverse pleasure out of having someone kicked out of your seat and sent a little bit lower down so that you could get the best seat in the house. Maybe that's the case here. 
Jesus used that situation to teach, making the point particularly in verse number 11 that your real position depends on God's evaluation of you, not on your own self-importance or self-seeking. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Clearly, he's teaching about much more than good manners here. Then in verse number 12, the host is advised not to invite all of his friends to a banquet, lest they all invite him back, and then he's repaid that way. Now, Jesus obviously is not forbidding the normal interactions in social life here. We know that beyond common sense just from the way that he lived his own life. But the point here, especially in the context of what's going on in this banquet, is that rather than being so concerned about worldly matters, about wealth, about prestige, about power, about status, you really need to be more concerned about those who don't have any of those things. Helping and feeding those people means that you won't be repaid. They're not able to repay you. That's true generosity. Spending money, inviting all of your friends, inviting your family, inviting those who will invite you back, that's not real generosity. It might be a nice thing to do. It might be worldly wisdom. It might be good business. But it's not true generosity. The result of that True generosity, Jesus says, will be eternal bliss. You'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. At the resurrection, those who have a feast for the poor will feast forever. During this time of year, we often see on television or we read in the newspaper about churches who have a a Thanksgiving dinner or they have a Christmas dinner for uh, those who are poor. But... Who cares for those people and who feeds them the day after Thanksgiving or the day after Christmas or all of the days after that? Now, I'm not saying that those sorts of banquets, those festivities are are wrong in any way. In fact, quite the opposite. Those are good. And I am thankful that this church has made it a priority to try to reach out and to feed those who are hungry in the community and that so many of you personally volunteer your time and your efforts to to take part in that good work. But I want us to see this even more personally this morning than some big church-wide organizational effort. We need to see that we care for and that we're supporting those who can't return the favor. That could be relatives, that could be our friends, that could be fellow church members, but they need not fall in any of those categories to be deserving of our help. We not only need to see about meeting their needs, but by doing so, we're meeting our own needs as well. Because if Jesus really lives in us, if we really reflect Christ out into the world, then we can't help 
but share him, not only in what we say, but in what we do. Like the first song we sang this morning, have you ever stood in the family and seen the face of Christ on each other? People need to see Christ in us. And so our actions should reflect that. I think at this season of the year in particular, we are more keenly susceptible to this sort of message, and I think it's one that we desperately need to hear. So with all that in mind, I want to do something unusual this morning. I'm just going to tell you a story. This is an adaptation of a story that was first told by Peter Marshall years ago, the one-time chaplain of the United States Senate. But he illustrates this principle so powerfully that I want to share the story with you. And as you can see, no slide for this. I want you to just listen as I talk. And your imagination, I want you to try to to visualize everything that's being said because your imagination is much more powerful than any images that we could show up there. And I hope, well, I found this really insightful when I first read it years ago, and I hope you'll find it as meaningful and significant as I did. One bitterly cold winter night, when Washington, D.C. was blanketed by snow and ice, a man sat in his comfortable home on Massachusetts Avenue. Picture the crackling log fire in the fireplace, throwing dancing shadows there on the paneled wall. The wind moaned softly through the trees outside. The reading lamp cast a warm glow on the book that this man was reading. He was alone. His children had gone out for the night and his wife was tired. She'd gone to bed early. He read the passage from Luke's gospel. That's our text. And he couldn't go any further. He read it again and then he read it a third time the way that we often do when we're trying to process something. And somehow he couldn't get away from those simple words. He'd read them often before. He read his Bible frequently. But somehow they'd never captured his imagination the way that they did tonight. He'd never read them before as he did now, almost as if they were, they were printed in flame. He closed his Bible, and he sat there for a while, lost in deep thought. For the first time in his life, he was conscious, really conscious of the challenge of Jesus In fact, he almost had the the strange fancy that those words were being whispered to him over and over again in his ear. What in the world had put this in his head? It was getting late. I must be getting sleepy, he thought. It's past time to go up and go to bed. But as he lay in his bed, he kept thinking of all of the beautiful dinners and the parties that they'd hosted in their home. And those who were normally invited were all of the who's who in Washington, D.C. The names were the names that everybody would know. Captains of industry, titans of finance, the power brokers in government, of course. These were the people who had the ability 
the power to grant favors, social favors, political favors. But they weren't poor or crippled or lame or blind. What had put this absurd thought in his head anyway? He tried to sleep, but as he did, he found he couldn't close the door of his mind to this procession of the poor that kept tramping its way through it. He saw beggars with blue lips. He saw sightless eyes staring vacantly ahead, cold and shivering. There were sticks tapping on the pavement. There were crutches creaking beneath the weight of a twisted body. As he saw these images, his heart was touched. And finally, he said a little prayer. He prayed to the Lord that if he would just give him the courage, he'd do what he asked him to do. And only then did he find peace and go to sleep. Well, the next morning, that determination gave him some renewed zest, some vigor. He woke up eager to start the day because he had a lot of planning, a lot of work to do. He got dressed and he went downtown, and the first stop that he made was at the engravers where he'd called often before. They knew him well, sending out invitations to his parties. And he stood there at the counter and he drafted the card, chuckling a little bit while he wrote it down, and then he handed it across to the clerk who looked at it kind of puzzled but didn't say anything because the card read, Jesus of Nazareth requests the honor of your presence at a banquet honoring the sons of want. On Friday evening in a home on Massachusetts Avenue, cars will await you at the Central Union Mission at 6 o'clock. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In the back room where they engraved things, they didn't really know quite what to make of that. Somebody pretty eccentric with more dollars than cents, if you know what I mean, but that wasn't really any of their business. Well, a few days later, with the invitations now in hand, he made his way downtown, and within an hour, everyone was wondering what this all could be about, this smiling, happy, well-dressed man who'd placed these invitations in their hand. There was an old man over here on the corner trying to sell pencils. There was another fellow over here with a hacking cough who had all the implements there to, to wash your windshield at the corner. There was a blind man who kept repeating to himself those words, Jesus of Nazareth, request the honor of your presence. At six o'clock that night, this strange group of men was all gathered together in the vestibule of the Central Union Mission. What's the catch with this, anyhow, asked one cynical fellow. There's got to be something up. You don't get something for nothing, so I want to know what the deal is. What difference does it make? Somebody responded. I do just about anything for a free meal. The blind man ventured, maybe it's some sort of new government relief program. And just about that time, someone came in and told them that the cars were ready to pick them up. And so wordlessly, they went outside. And it was a strange sight 
these men with their thin coats, pulling them tightly around their even thinner bodies, their faces pinched and blue and unshaven, piling in to two bright, shiny, long limousines. Probably nothing like that had ever been seen before. It was pretty incongruous. Well, presently, they pulled up to their destination, the house on Massachusetts Avenue, and they got out and they just looked up at the house for a while. None of them were very often, if ever, at places like this. And they made their way slowly up the broad staircase across the thickly piled carpets, trying to take all of this in. Presently, they were greeted by their host. He was a quiet man. He didn't say much, except, I'm so glad that you came. But by and by, they were seated at the dining table with its spotless linens, with all of its gleaming silverware, and they'd looked at all the tapestries hung on the walls. They'd seen all of the illuminated pictures in their heavy frames. They looked up and they saw the great crystal chandelier hanging over the dining table, and they were overwhelmed. There was silence, and it seemed for a while like the entire dinner would pass in silence. Presently, the host stood up and he said in a slightly trembling voice, my friends, let's ask the blessing. If this is pleasing to thee, O Lord, bless us as we sit around this table and bless the food that we're about to receive. Bless these men. You know who they are and what they need and help us to do what you want us to do. Accept our thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, by this point, the blind man was smiling. And he asked someone next to him about the host. What does he look like? And all that seemed to break the ice. And pretty soon, the conversation flowed there around the table. And then the first course was laid. The host said, my friends, I know you're all hungry. I'm glad that you're here. Go ahead. Don't be shy. Dig in. It was a strange party, pretty fantastic in the truest sense of the term, the host thought as he looked around there. Men who otherwise would probably still be loitering in the back streets of Washington, D.C., who might be crouched in some doorway, who might be huddled around some small makeshift fire, all here in his home. They didn't have any credentials. They didn't have any social recommendations. They didn't have any particular graces as far as he could see. But one thing they had is hunger. They were hungry. And as he sat there talking to them, the stories in the Gospels kept coming back to him. He could almost imagine, in fact, that this was all transpiring in a house in Galilee. Wasn't this... Wasn't this just the sort of crowd that Jesus would have gathered around him? These broken pieces of humanity. Oh, he remembered what his family had said when he'd told them his plan. What's gotten into you? Why in the world would you want to do something like that? Well, why was it? Wasn't it obvious? He did it for the same reason that Jesus had ever 
performed any miracle, ever healed anyone, ever reached out with that touch of tenderness because he had compassion on these people. He was sorry for their plight and he wanted to do one thing, just this one small thing to try to demonstrate love to them just this once. But there wasn't any trace of condescension in his attitude. He treated them like they belonged there, like they were his brothers, like they had just as much right to be there in his house as he did. He watched them eat, and he directed the servants with a, a nod or a gesture to keep filling the plates. He laughed when they seemed somewhat reluctant to keep eating, and it made them laugh too. And as he sat there, it suddenly occurred to him how different the conversation was than what he was used to going around on around that table there wasn't any off-color stories there were no whispers of scandal there wasn't any well I have it on good authority no they were all talking about their companions wishing that some of their other friends were there wondering whether Charlie had found a bed in the shelter or whether Jose had decided to, to stick it out when he'd been thinking about ending it all or whether the little woman with the little baby had found a job. And wasn't the steak delicious? They marveled that they still remembered what food like this tasted like. When the meal was over, the guests all got up and they seated themselves in comfortable chairs around the fireplace. And when they were all seated, the host said to them, I know you're all wondering why you're here tonight, and I could tell you very simply, but let me read something to you first. And he read to them stories from the Gospels of one who moved among the sick, the outcast, the despised, the friendless, how Jesus healed this one, or how he cured that one, or how he spoke some words of love and encouragement that had infinite meaning to someone, how he was willing to reach out to those who were ostracized, those unwanted pariahs in the world, and what he promised to everyone who believed in him. Then he said, I haven't done very much for you tonight but it's made me happy to have you here in my home and if all I've done tonight has made you half as happy as I've been to have you I hope you'll carry this memory with you and I'll be content with that but I want you to know this isn't my party it's his I've only lent him the house here that you see he's your host He's the one who's invited you here tonight. He's your friend. And he's given me the honor of speaking for him. He's sad when you're sad. He hurts when you do. He weeps when you weep. He wants to help you. If you'll let him. I'm going to give you all copies of his book, and I've marked passages in here that I hope you'll find comforting when you're sick or when you're in pain, when you're lonely, 
when you're discouraged. Then I'm going to see each and every one of you tomorrow where I saw you today, and we're going to have a talk, and I'm going to find out how I can help each one of you the best. There are cars waiting to take each of you home, and if any of you doesn't have a place to stay, you're invited to spend the night here. They all shuffled out into the dark, a different group of men than they were when they arrived. The blind man was smiling still as he stood on the doorstep and he turned to where the host was and he said, God bless you, my friend, whoever you are. A wizened little fellow who hadn't said anything all night long stopped and said, I'm going to try again, mister. There's something worth living for. Even the cynic stopped and said, you're the only man who's ever given me anything. You've given me hope. The host was quick to say, it's not me. It's he who's giving you hope. As he stood there and he waved goodbye to them. The man went back inside the house. He sat down in his chair in front of that same fireplace again and he stared at the dying embers until he became overwhelmed again with that sense that there was someone there in the room with him. Someone standing in the shadows, smiling, because some of the least of these had been treated as brothers for his sake. Of course, that's only a story. It's only... An illustration, a sort of modern-day parable, never really happened. But why shouldn't it happen on Massachusetts Avenue in Washington, D.C., or on Park Avenue in New York City, or in Beverly Hills, or in River Oaks in Houston, or in Liberty, Texas? Now, maybe you're sitting there thinking right now that, well, that all sounds well and good, but that didn't really do anything to change things. That might make you feel better. That might assuage your guilt briefly. But we're talking about a systemic problem here. One meal's not going to change anything. And if you're thinking like that, then you're missing the point of the lesson this morning. And the point is this. What would happen if we all read the scriptures, if we all read the gospels in particular, and we read until we were told to go and do something, and then we stopped reading, and then we went out and did it, only then to to come back and to read again? Why don't we do what Jesus says? Our friends would think we'd lost it a little bit. Acquaintances would call us peculiar. The world would call us crazy. But we would be in good company because we would know that one who had all of those things and more said about him would smile on us. There are aspects of Scripture, aspects of the Gospels that are, that are puzzling and are difficult for us to understand. I don't deny that. 
but our problems don't center so much on those things that we don't understand, but on the things that we do understand, the things that we could not possibly misunderstand. This is only one illustration of a thousand that could be given, this one aspect of our lives. But our problem isn't so much that we don't know what to do. We know perfectly well. But we don't want to do it. Friend, if you're here this morning outside of Christ, then the one thing I would urge you to do is to become a Christian before it's everlastingly too late. Jesus does love you. He cares for you. And God demonstrated his love for you to such an extent that Jesus died for you when you were lost in sin. I urge you to put your faith, your trust in him and to turn to God in repentance, to have your sins washed away in the waters of baptism and to be added to his people have all the blessings that come along with that in this life and the next. If you're here this morning and you are a Christian, I would simply encourage you to do what Jesus says. And if you haven't done that and you need to make changes, it's his invitation while we stand and while we sing.